0: Jesus name. Amen.
1: Amen. Good morning. How is everyone? You can be seated. We have been having a fantastic weekend with Joel. Uh, Joel Richardson's here. We always pray for our services. We always pray that the Lord will be blessing them. We've been praying for Joel's arrival here and not having met him before. I want to tell you, I love this guy. He's just been awesome. And Joel, we're so thankful to have you here. He's been ministering things to our hearts and it's just kind of fun when you meet someone that's sort of outside the normal circles of a Calvary Chapel, and he brings things into our, our, our lives. In this case, it's Joel, but others, just bringing things that we really hadn't thought quite like that before or something like that. I think this morning that's going to happen for all of us as Joel brings the word to us. And so would you give a warm welcome to Joel Richardson this morning? <clears throat>
0: Morning, happy Palm Sunday. Right, so this is um, this is the Sunday when Jesus rides on a donkey into Jerusalem, leading up to uh, Holy Week, Good Friday, and ultimately Easter and so forth. Or at least this is when we we celebrate it, leading up to Passover slash Easter slash uh, How do the Jews say it? Pesach, Pesach. And then the Orthodox call it Pascha. So, we, so the Catholics call it Easter, the Orthodox call it Pascha, the Jews call it Pesach. It's all dealing with that, um, that sort of culminary um, prophetic moment in history when after God took on flesh, this is such an amazing concept, the author of life died. And you think of the spiritual Ramifications—the explosion in the spirit, if you will—that happened at that moment. And sometimes we think that our sins are so big, and that's like—it's like thinking, "Yeah, I've been working out; I could easily stand a nuclear blast," you know, kind of thing. It's just like our sins are so pathetic in light of the amazing things that took place on that day. In any case, it's a blessing to be here. Um, yeah, you know, we have been having an excellent uh, time. I've been having a great time, just sort of getting to know the family. Um, thanks again to Pastor Kevin. And really, I have to mention, because I haven't uh, thanked Greg Parker for sort of being the initiator uh, in terms of the invitation, um, I think probably sowing the seeds to get me out here. And we've been having an excellent time of just sort of, again, just getting to know the family and, and fellowship and in praying and so forth. So uh, thanks again. So the, the subject of this morning's discussion... And actually, I'm going to sort of tie it in with uh, Palm Sunday. If you think about this, Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, lowly, you know, the foal of a colt. Um, somebody said, who, somebody said, said it. It's a funny quote. They said, the donkey is the most noble of all work animals or something like that, you know. It was, and it's a lowly animal. Jesus enters Jerusalem, the king of the universe, riding a donkey, and again leading up to holy week but in a prophetic way the entry into jerusalem that was just a shadow that was a prophetic type of something that we're looking forward to much more you know we remember easter we're grateful for easter because on easter god laid down his life and purchased something for us he because of what he did we have an inheritance and that is called the kingdom of God. But the the triumphal entry into Jerusalem was a foreshadow of the ultimate triumphal entry when Jesus will come back from heaven, no longer on a donkey but on a white horse, um, you know, making all the donkeys jealous, and he will take his throne in Jerusalem. I mean, this is sort of the the culmination of all biblical expectation is the time when Jesus will return. Now, it's, you know, I'll, I'll say this. I sort of touched on it last night. It's a blessing to be here in a Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel is a, again, I don't know it's officially called, a fellowship of churches or a, uh, something along this line. It's not officially a denomination fellowship. 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 To be in, in such a, a fellowship that has had such a profound impact on the United States and globally. Um, but in terms of its roots, uh, the Calvary Chapel is really rooted in the Jesus movement, now, the Jesus movement, again, how many people here came to faith out of the Jesus movement, during the Jesus movement? Um, you know, it's, it's nobody, nobody below 30. Um, you know, so this was primarily, you know, and probably nobody under 40. In the 60s and 70s, and you think about this, this was the most significant revival in recent American history. I mean, the number of people that came in during the Jesus movement, this is the biggie. Going, before that, it was Azusa Street, the Pentecostal revival sort of thing. And so how many people want revival in the United States, right? We want to see an ingathering of, of lost souls. We want to see the family expanded. We want to see more people at the feast. Well, two of the primary factors that were driving the Jesus movement, of which Calvary really came out of the Jesus movement. I mean, if not for the Jesus movement, Calvary Chapel wouldn't exist. It is the outgrowth of the Jesus movement, Chuck Smith, and just all that rich history. But two of the primary factors that were leading people into the kingdom, one, the Holy Spirit was moving, so the Holy Spirit was doing all kinds of things, and the other factor was that in 1948, and then in, uh, Israel was re, uh, you know, reestablished as a state, and then in '67 they take Jerusalem. Okay, so the point is that prophecy, biblical prophecy, was fulfilled, and then in sort of the aftermath of that. People start looking at this book. They start opening up the Bible, and all sorts of books were written and and really instrumental because you you can't really mention the period without mentioning Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. How many people had the hell scared out of them during that time? <laughs> they read that book, um, you know. And there were others, obviously, that were writing, but that was such. I mean, I don't know what it sold like millions of of copies. But essentially, all Hal did is he popularized, he detailed the fact that what the biblical prophets had been saying for thousands of years had just been fulfilled right in our day, on the earth, on the ground, in the newspaper, on the news, right in front of us. The words of the biblical prophets. And you can't can't predict things like that 2,000 years ahead of time because there's nothing in history to to match it. The reestablishment of a people who had been dispersed throughout the nations, and then came back to their ancient homeland, reestablished it, uh, re-resurrected the Hebrew language, for goodness sakes. I mean, this was a miracle, unfolded, prophetic fulfillment in our time. So it was the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, combined with the activity of the Holy Spirit, which I like to point back to the apostles. When you look at the, the book of Acts, the early church, what were the two primary tools, in the arsenal of the apostles, the the disciples of Jesus, in terms of how were they leading their fellow countrymen into the kingdom? Well, it was, you know, hey, fella, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. So again, it was the power of the Holy Spirit. It was the activity of the Holy Spirit was moving. And we need to to learn how to lean on God, lean on the Holy Spirit to let him do what he does because he loves to do stuff. And oftentimes we're afraid. And that's understandable. I've had a few flubs myself, um, you know, where I really feel like the Lord's leading me just to offer some person prayer, you know, in some random place. And I'm like, awkwardly like, hey, you know, I know this might sound weird, but I just, and they're just like, thanks, pal. No, thanks. <laughs> Take a hike. You know? You're know, you like, I guess that wasn't the Holy Spirit. But, you know, so I understand, you know, the fear of, of sort of following the lead of the Holy Spirit. But um, we need to be people who sort of recover that, that trust in letting God do what he loves to do, which is touch people. He does. Um, but there was the issue of the Holy Spirit, and then the other thing, the apostles, what were they doing? You look at the, you look at the sermons, the preaching of you know, Stephen and Peter and the early um, you know, gospel proclamations in the book of Acts, and it was always this. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet. He would go, you guys who crucified Jesus, guess what? That is exactly what the prophets were speaking of. And they would relate events that had taken place in their day back to the words of the prophets, and they were struck to the heart. They were like, oh, my gosh, you're right. You know, 900 years ago, when Isaiah the prophet said this, he was actually speaking of what we just saw happen in Jerusalem, and we were actually part of it, part of the story. So the fulfillment of biblical prophecy was an apologetic for the reliability and the testimony of this book, and then the activity of the Holy Spirit. Likewise, during the Jesus movement, it was the same two things. Because when you open up the book and you go, there is no way that you could coordinate. This is not self fulfilled, manipulated prophecy. These guys actually foresaw the future. You know, even the devil can't predict the future, only God can do that. And then you go, well, I guess that means that this other stuff here about not stealing, lying, and being a drunkard. That also is true. You know, God's moral claims on my life, whosoever believeth in him shall inherit eternal life. I guess that part's true, and that those who reject it are cast into the lake of fire. I guess that's true as well. And so the fulfillment of biblical prophecy is a, in fact, it is the most biblical of apologetics for the, the truth concerning this book, the truth concerning the gospel, the message that we have to proclaim. However, during the 80s, there were also some abuses, because the issue of the end times, it's a minefield, it really is, and there are many easy errors that Christians fall into throughout history. I've, I've read so many books that just detail the repeated mistakes that we've made You know, everything from antichrist pointing to date setting to adding and mixing extra biblical prophecies and Well, you know, maybe the Bible does affirm the Mayan calendar or, you know, whatever strange new thing comes along and then people set dates and so forth. Well, during the 80s, you had a book that was very popular. How many people remember the book? 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. (laughs) I think we can agree that that was a false prophecy. And there were other books. In fact, I mean, even, God bless him, the Lord used them in a way, but even Hal Lindsey wrote a book called 1980s Countdown to Armageddon, which he very strongly inferred, um, based on some calculations and different things, that that's when Jesus was going to return. And there were other, you know, excesses and errors. But what happened out of that is, although biblical prophecy was used initially, then they kind of went, eh. A lot of Christians kind of said the issue of the end times, biblical prophecy, been there, done that, tried it, got let down, disappointed, and they basically just shelved the whole issue. They kind of just put it on the shelf and they go, let's just talk about having good healthy families and, you know, serving and reaching out to the poor and, you know, let's talk about the main and the plain, but let's not, let's just avoid the book of Revelation. And look, I... I actually sympathize with that. There were abuses. There were issues. Of course, the Bible says don't set dates. Jesus said don't do it. Even the son doesn't know, you know. But we ignored that part, and, um, you know, we focused on this other stuff. But here's the biggest problem with it, is that although biblical prophecy, I mean, among millennials right now, they're really not interested in this stuff, is that the baby that gets thrown out with the bathwater is a non-negotiable. Like, I go, if you don't want to talk about the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and which nations are going to go to... I go, I'm fine with that. Like, you don't have to focus on that. I fully understand. But the return of Jesus and the kingdom that's coming, that's what the whole story is about. You know, all of the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, all that stuff is what Jesus refers to as the birth pains. Now, how many husbands here have ever, you know, had your wife was pregnant and you come home from work and you're like, honey... Oh, I'm just so excited all day. I've just been thinking about the birth pains. Let's talk about the birth pains. She'd be like, what the, what's wrong with you? No, because look, you know, but you know, if you're a husband, you do go to Lama's class or whatever, and you go, this is how you do it. Okay, now let's practice, what are they called? Kegels, ready? I'm doing Kegels right now. (laughs) Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. They're exercises. I didn't really do them. I was just pretending. Um, you do go to the classes and you learn about the birth pains because that's part of the process, but that's not the focus. Jesus wants us to know about the birth pangs. He wants us to be aware of the signs of the times. It's important, but it's not the focus. The focus is the birth. And the birth in this analogy that Jesus uses and the Bible uses is the coming of the king and the establishment of the coming kingdom of God. And guys, in terms of what we are all about as Christians, the gospel, the good news that we have to proclaim, it is all about the return of Jesus and the coming kingdom. This is the good news. When we preach to the, to the world and we go, hey guys, we have good news. Here's why you should leave, here's why you should stop doing drugs. You know, like, I'm ask. I know this is a big ask. We have a good alternative. We have something to replace it. And yet, we basically, when it comes to preaching the gospel, we, we hardly talk about all of the rich substance that the scriptures lay out with regard to the coming kingdom of God and the return of Jesus and all the glories of that age because we, we, we've kind of just almost abandoned that whole subject. And it's amazing. This is the good news. This is what is what the Bible calls the blessed hope. What is it that gets us through the hard days, the hard seasons, the hard years? What is it that sustains us when the world around us is melting down, when all the things that we love are disappearing and dissipating? What is it that gets us through the frustration of the injustices, the wickedness, the brokenness, the pain of this current age? It's the age to come. That's biblical. And yet we hardly ever talk about it. We go, the gospel is basically this. Someday you die and go to heaven forever. Someday you die and you don't have to go to hell. And we're like, that's good news, but that's incredibly minimalistic. That's an incredibly truncated, shortened, minimal version of the good news that we have. You know, it's like, you know, you go fishing and instead of putting a big, giant earthworm on the hook, you just kind of touch it to the worm. And go, come on, guys, how come you're not eating? And they're like, throw the worm on. The Lord has given us. (laughs) I just make up these analogies on the spot, and then I realize they're terrible. (laughs) We have earthworms at our disposal, and we're just leaving them in the bucket. I guess it sort of works. So let's begin with Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Oh, sorry. Yes, I forgot. You can't see my computer. Okay. Now, this begins with a reference to the Abrahamic covenant. You could simply say the Abrahamic promise. This is the beginning of God's promise plan of redemption because he has a plan to redeem everything. You know, it's not just Jesus came to SOS save our souls. Our, our, our hope, our expectation is not just someday we become spirits, you know, in the great by and by, but rather there is a day of resurrection whereby we get new bodies, glorified, immortal bodies. That's biblical. Now... The beginning of this promised plan to redeem all of creation, heaven and earth, begins with a series of promises that God made to Abraham, and it concerns a piece of land, and we won't get into all of that, but this is what the uh, writer of Hebrews is referring to at the beginning. He says, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear. He wanted, we are the heirs to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. In other words, he made it very clear that this is something we can rely on. God is good on his word. So he made a promise. He made an oath. It was actually an oath unto death. When God basically had Abraham cut these animals in half, and he walks between the pieces, what God was saying in a very sort of a symbolic, even liturgical sense, is he was saying, may I, who's the creator of the universe, die like these animals, cut in half these stinking, bloody, broken animals, if I don't keep my promises. How many believe God's going to keep his promises? This is essentially what he's doing. So he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, and then it refers to us, and it uses this phrase, and I love this phrase, we who have fled. What have we fled from? We who are followers of Jesus, we have fled. We have left behind. We have died to this current, broken, wicked, corrupt Aging, tired system. The Bible calls it this age. This age. The Bible calls it the world. You see, we have died not to this planet. We haven't died to the trees and to the ocean and to the fish. God made us to live on the planet, but we've died to the current system that governs the the earth. Not just the human system, but the spiritual system system that governs the earth. And the, and the Bible calls it this world. We've died to the principles of this world. We've died to the value systems of this world and we fled for something much better. We have fled. We have left it behind. We've seen it in all of its gore and its glory and we've said, I want nothing to do with that. I've, I've seen, I've caught a glimpse of something that's coming, something that's much better. So we who have fled in order to what? To take hold of the hope offered to us we have a hope. Let's talk about that hope so that we may be greatly encouraged. I believe that a large part of the sermons on Sunday should focus on our hope because the purpose of gathering together on Sunday is to encourage one another because as soon as you leave out there, there's all kinds of discouragement. Everything's going to discourage you and, and, and cause you to not believe in the hope and to be discouraged and just get focused on the here and the now. So we gather together so that we can be greatly encouraged. And then he says this, we have this hope as what? An anchor for the soul, firm and secure. We have something that we are anchored to in order that when the storms, the pain, the tragedy of life comes, we have something that is unshakable the rock of ages, and we are anchored to that, and that is our hope. And no matter what comes, we have something greater that we can access, that we can hold on to, that we're looking forward to. And it's not just something that we're holding on to now, although that is the purpose now, but it's something that we will see, that we will taste, that we will hear, that we will be part of, and it's real. It has substance. As real as this moment is real right now. So the first thing that we need to focus on is the essence of this kingdom that's coming. When Jesus comes back and establishes the kingdom of God on earth, the essence of this kingdom is that it is the kingdom of justice. What do I mean by that? In this age, there is tremendous injustice. We are called to turn the other cheek and defer it to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the the return of Jesus. The New Testament calls it the day of Messiah. Messiah. And we defer it to that day because on that day, God will execute justice. And the essence of that kingdom that's coming is the kingdom of justice. Um, You know, over the past few years, there have been tremendous injustices, even in our nation, that have been exposed. And there are, you know, tremendous, there's a burden on many of our hearts concerning the injustices of this age, and it wears us out. It's tiring. The essence of the age to come is when the Lord reverses everything. In this age, those who are downtrodden, those who are sick, those who are tired, those who are afflicted, those who are rejected, those who are lame, you know, all of these different things, those who have patiently awaited the coming of the Messiah, who've patiently awaited their hope, they will be rewarded and their, the entire situation will be reversed. On the other hand, those who have exalted themselves, who have exploited others in order to put themselves at the top, they will be cast down. It is the day of justice. It is the day when everything finally makes sense. Because I can tell you, if there is not a day of justice, this whole world, this whole life makes no sense at all. It's just a chaotic nightmare. But it's not. It's not. There is a day when everything will finally make sense. And this is why we defer justice. This is why we turn the other cheek, because we're confident that the just judge is coming and he will deal with these things. And we pray, you know, when people are unjust to us, we pray, Lord, give them the spirit of repentance. Give them the gift of repentance because if not, it will be terrible on that day. And we repent ourselves because who wants to stand before a just judge? I mean, honestly, I guarantee you there are things in every one of our lives that that day is a terrifying day. And apart from the blood of Jesus, no one can stand on that day. So let's just look at a, We'll buzz through a whole bunch of verses that just establish the, uh, the centrality of this issue. Isaiah 9, verse 7, famous messianic prophecy. Speaking of the coming of Jesus and his kingdom, it says there will be no end to the increase of his government or of, his, of peace. It is, uh, as they said in uh, Chariots of Fire, he is a benevolent dictator. He is a loving dictator, but he will be king for life. You know, there's, there's no four-year terms when Jesus comes back. And he will specifically rule on the throne of David. That's his great-great-great-great-grandfather. So it is on the Davidic throne, the restored throne of David. That's a very Jewish kingdom of Israel, you know, the Davidic dynasty. And over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. You know, there's, there's no more seasons of adversity. He will sit on the throne and his kingdom, the essence of which is justice and righteousness will only expand. The zeal, the passion of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That day is coming. That day is real. Isaiah 11, verse 4, With righteousness he will judge who? The poor. He will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Micah 4, verse 6, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts. The emphasis is always on the forgotten, the needy, the outcast, the hated, the marginalized, again, the lowly, the poor of spirit. That's why when Jesus said, he quoted Isaiah, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to who is the good news for? the poor, and so this is essential that we get in touch with our poverty of spirit, you know, and we recognize our wretchedness, if you will, our sinfulness before God, and don't live in denialism in terms of the reality of our own existence. Most of us, for most of us, that's not hard. We're pretty much in touch with our own brokenness and wickedness, but, you know, don't get deceived into pride. Pride is blindness. Isaiah 29, verse 19. The afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord. It's the afflicted that will rejoice in that day. The needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 35, verse 6. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the mute tongue will shout for joy. There is going to be a time, if you're sick right now, perhaps the Lord will intervene and heal you in this age, The Lord still does miracles, but you can guarantee the day of healing is coming if you're in Christ. Everyone's getting healed. Those in wheelchairs will get out and jump like deer. We were talking last night. That's at least eight feet. If you have a high fence, you've seen them. They can clear an eight-foot fence, so get ready. Zephaniah 3.19. The Lord says, I will save who? The lame. I will gather those who are driven out, the rejected. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. You see the reversal. Those who were rejected, they become appointed. They're now the famous one. And and all of the shame is, is reversed. Psalm 72, verse 13, he will have compassion on the poor and the needy, the lives of the needy he will save. Again, this is the essence of the day of the Lord. And so I kind of have a little uh, chart here when I say the great reversal, the essence of the spirit of this age, the essence of the world, is that people always claw their way to the top of the pyramid. You know, every one of us have worked for some boss who gets, you know, a little position of authority, gets a big head, he starts becoming controlling and, you know, an egomaniac, or, I mean. You know, if you've been around long enough, you've probably even gone to a church (laughs) where there was, you know, leadership that was just, you know, using their authority in an abusive way. I mean, it exists everywhere. Government is probably the most brazen example where we can all relate. These guys are intended to be servant leaders. They put themselves in positions of power, they vote for themselves to have pay raises, and in like four years in government, they become millionaires. You go, oh, yeah, you've really been serving us well, haven't you? And they do things for their own embetterment, empowerment. You know, the three Gs, the, the, the girls, the gold, the glory, or if they're a girl, then the guys, the gold, the glory. You know, just those things. And it's not about serving the people, but that's what, the whole, that's what government is about. And it's every position of authority is intended to be a position, by the way, of servant leadership. Every position of authority before God is to serve those that you are leading. That's the essence of true leadership. So now God, in contrast, who made everything, steps into the earth steps into flesh takes on flesh and he made himself a servant of us even to the point of death on a cross and it was demonstrated his servant nature was demonstrated in the cross and this is why it says in second uh, i'm sorry philippians 2 that it says have in yourselves the same attitude as Christ think about this god almighty made everything he put himself at the back of the line he put himself at the bottom of the pyramid And he says, you guys, have in yourselves the same attitude of Christ, who although he was God Almighty, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, demanded, lorded over. Hey, guys, I'm God. Give me the throne. No, he came and he made himself a servant, even to the point of death on a cross. He goes, you guys have in yourselves the same attitude. Now, if we imitate Jesus, if we follow his lead, if we choose to put ourselves at the bottom, We choose to make ourselves servants. Those who are first will be, you know, last, and those who are last will be first because the kingdom of God is this sort of inside out, upside down, reverse kingdom. But the day is coming when everything gets reversed. Then at the day of the Lord, the lowly, the poor, the forgotten, the, the needy will be exalted with the king. The humble of the earth will be lifted up. Those who exalted themselves will be humbled, humiliated, and or cast into the lake of fire. That is the essence of the day of the Lord. That is justice. Every one of us, whether we're in touch with it or not, that's what we're yearning for. When we open the news every morning and we go, oh, oh, you know, I mean, it's just endless. We're yearning for the day of the Lord. And, you know, I, I said this, I don't know, I guess, I don't know when I said it, but in my whole life, I've, I've actually struggled to a degree I don't like to use the word depression because it's not really depression, but I've always wrestled with a measure of sadness. And, you know, I always kind of thought this is something I need to get rid of. I need to sort of, you know, rise above. But the truth is there should be a measure of sadness in all of us. There should be a groan. It actually says in Romans 8 that all of creation is groaning. And groaning is like a painful thing. It's like, oh, it's a sigh Why? Because things aren't supposed to be this way. I don't care how blessed you are. No matter how blessed you are, there is still just something fundamentally wrong with this world. It's it's unjust. It's broken. You're not supposed to get sick. We're not supposed to get old. This is not how God made it. But he is going to restore things back to Eden, better than the Garden of Eden. And it's okay to have a groan. In fact, I would argue that the groan of all creation, that was the cry of the early church. It was, their cry of the early church was, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And much of the church today, we've lost the groan. We've tried to quiet it. I'm victory in Jesus. You know, it's like we can pep talk ourselves out of not hearing the groan anymore. And that's okay, you know, I mean, you know, we, but as long as it's oriented toward the future, And it's okay to to be in touch with just the the sense of of pain because of the present age that we live in. But then we direct that pain toward the glories of the age to come. That's, That's Christianity 101. What else? There will be an entirely new global leadership structure. I love this. Psalm 110, one of the most famous messianic psalms, Jesus quoted it with regard to himself. Um, it begins, it says, The Lord, that's God Almighty, David, King David said, God Almighty said to my Lord. And then Jesus goes, How can God, how can David call his son Lord? And they, they were like, that's a good question. He was making the point because his son is more than just a man. His son is actually God in the flesh. He was basically declaring his divinity. He goes, how can, how can David say to his son, call him Lord? But so the Lord... David said "Said to my lord, his great-great-grandson, sit at my right hand until when I make your enemies a footstool. The day is coming when the king will crush the enemies, his enemies, our enemies under his feet. And then you get to the last two verses. It says this, the Lord is at your right hand. This is talking about Jesus when he comes back. What will Jesus do when he comes back? One of the things he will do, he will crush kings on the day of his wrath he will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Now, this is pretty harsh language. How many of you ever walked into a church and had a big painting of Jesus killing politicians right when you walk in? (laughs) That's That's not there. It's always, you know, something else. That's a big facet of who Jesus is. When, you know, I always say this, a Jewish man is coming back to engage in a hostile takeover of the earth. And dictators should be trembling. So when, when we go, well, enemy he's going to kill people? Think Robert Mugabe. Think Kim Jong-un. Think the Ayatollahs. Think of those who oppress their people. Again, they should be servant leaders. Instead, they make themselves rich while their people you know, are in school, living in squalor, starving, eating dirt, and this sort of thing. Jesus is going to come back and kill them. He's going to judge them. And anyone who lives self-righteously anyone who is self-exalting he's going to remove the current corrupt leadership of the earth and i mean this is actually a theme that's consistent throughout the prophets what else He will then replace those unrighteous leaders with righteous, humble servant leaders. As one example, Jesus is telling a parable in Luke 19, he says, well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in little things, in the small things, the unseen things. All of you wives who stay home with the kids, screaming, going crazy, with no praise, with no fanfare, you who have been faithful in little, come take charge over 10 cities. That's the essence of, of the kingdom to come, the great reversal. And, you know, the, the, those who stand on stage and preach and, you know, do all this, and then people clap when I, you know, I'll go to a big conference and let's welcome Joel Rich, and then everyone claps. I tremble because I'm going, my wife's at home and the kids are probably mistreating her right now, <laughs> you know? And I'm going, she's going to inherit half of the earth when Jesus comes back, and I am going to be cleaning out her. Gutters and mowing her lawn in her mansions. You know what I mean. It's going to be a full-time deal because her mansion is going to be very large. There will be no more wars. There is a time for war in this current corrupt age. However, we oftentimes argue in favor of wars when we probably shouldn't. In retrospect, you know, I've stood before um, the largest Arab church in northern Iraq and preached, and I was doing everything I could not to break down and just start bawling. And I'm not like a big cry guy. Um, I'm looking into the eyes of my Arab brothers and sisters, evangelicals, and I'm going, you know, 15 years or so ago, I cheered when George Bush said, same people that brought down these buildings, we're gonna, they're going to hear from us soon. And when, it, when he talked about the invasion of Iraq, I cheered for it. I said, let's do it. And I'm standing there looking in their eyes going, I cheered for something that was partially responsible for absolutely destroying your nation completely. And my brothers and sisters, you know, we oftentimes justify wars. I'm not saying there's not a time for war, but they result in, today we have more vets committing suicide, traumatic brain injuries, post-traumatic stress syndrome, all of this stuff. The day is coming when there will be no more wars. Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4, Jesus will judge between the nations. He will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. I love this. They will convert weapons of war into you, you, you tools for agriculture. You know, instead of blowing people away with an AK-47, those resources will be used to till the soil and to create all kinds of wonderful organic vegetables. I wonder if there'll be new vegetables. I wonder what will happen to you know, technology. I'm, I'm always fascinated. How will technology work? Will we all be driving around Priuses? Or will it just be some kind of, you know, will we still have what, you know what I mean? It's like, what's, what's it going to be like? Because there's a very physical, real world coming. I tend to think there's no way that Jesus likes Priuses. I'm just, but I don't know how it's going to work. Definitely smart cars. Those things are getting crushed. He will crush kings and smart cars on the day of his wrath. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. All of you karate guys, I'm sorry. The training's gonna come to an end. They will no longer train for war. We will rebuild the earth. Now, this is something that's easy to sort of pass over, to sort of go, wait a minute. I always say this. The day is coming, according to the prophets, according to the scriptures, when we all get to either quit Or retire from our lousy jobs that we hate, and we get to be part of Jesus's kingdom rebuilding committee. We get to be part of His architectural planning committee. We get to be part of His His garden planning crew. How many people want to be part of Jesus's garden planning committee? How many? Think of architecture. What kind of architecture will Jesus like? What's he into? You know, is, is the whole, because the, there's going to be a great earthquake, the, the birth pangs, um, the, the, all the cities will fall. There's going to be massive devastation, and then we actually inherit this new world. We partner with Jesus. There's actually glorious work that we get to participate in, rebuilding the nations. And so I go, there's going to be an issue of architecture. Is it going to be all of these Middle Eastern-style brick, um, you know, block homes with the flat roofs? Is it going to be more Italian with all those beautiful, you know, earthen clay tiles? Is it going to be Gothic revival, majestic European stylized stuff? Or is it going to be all like Art Nouveau Hobbit homes? You know, is it going to be super organic? Is Jesus really the hippie that we've always portrayed him to be? (laughs) What's it going to be like? I don't know. I like thinking about it. I I like wondering. You know, I love getting lost in the age to come. Isaiah 61, verse 4, speaking of those during that time, we will be part of this. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. We will be part of rebuilding the earth and 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 filling the earth, and and even to a degree, proclaiming the glory of God to the nations. I actually believe there will actually be evangelism that will continue after he comes back. That it's not just, he doesn't just come back and immediately snap his fingers and everyone, you know, like there's actually a very real world that continues. It's a strange concept. I grew up as the son of a commercial fisherman and on uh, Cape Cod, uh, Massachusetts, the other side of the continent. And um, so it's nice to get out here and smell the salt air and get near the ocean. I live in Kansas City now. We have rivers. We have a thing out there. If you really want to become a true Missourian, if you want to get like initiated into the gang, what you need to do is take a six-pack of beer, go out with the boys, go into the muddy river. This is what they do where I moved. Stick your hand into a muddy hole under the water and wiggle your fingers until a big catfish bites your hand, and then you pull it out and catch it with your hand. They call it noodling. Well, some people call it hand fishing. No, you don't really have to do that. But that's what they do where I'm from. And then they eat them, and they taste like mud. And they deep fry it, and it's like, ooh, this is some good, greasy mud. I grew up eating fish that were wiggling an hour ago, you know, sort of thing. So I showed my dad. I found this verse because he's, he's getting old. In the age to come, there will be fishing the scriptures actually say that they will be fishing in the age to come. I mean, like, think about this. When have you ever heard that proclaimed in church? Wait a minute. After I die, I get to go fishing? Yeah. I mean, it actually says that. Ezekiel 47, 9 through 10. It talks about this river that will be flowing out of Jerusalem, and it's this new river that springs up from from Jerusalem, and it goes down, and it makes the Dead Sea fresh. And... It says, swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. So this is this life-giving spring. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from en to En-Edglaim. There will be places for the spreading of fishermen's nets and the fish will be of many kinds. Now, I might be wrong but I'm pretty sure that it's not going to be catch and release. Because otherwise, why are they doing it? I could be wrong. Where I, um, another. I'm just joking. Don't take me seriously when I talk about a six-pack of beer. I'm just trying to get into the ambiance of Missouri. But the other thing that um, we have a saying in Missouri is this. is uh, I heard a guy say it once. He goes, I catch and release into hot grease. <laughs> There will be gardening. There will be vineyards. Has anybody ever told you that in the age to come, you get your own vineyard? Amos 9, 9 through 15. Behold, the days are coming. Listen, guys, these days are real. The days are coming, declares the Lord. Oops, sorry. What? Did I go backwards? Yep. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman will overtake the reaper. What that means is the guy who is tilling in the spring, is gonna, he's going to be conflicting with the guy who's harvesting. There's so much fruit, so much good stuff that they're still gathering the stuff, and it's time to get ready for the next year. The abundance is what it's communicating. And the treader of grapes, those who are squishing the grapes, um, him who sows seed... Because it's going to be blessed. No, no more. Is it going to be a season where ah, oh, the tomatoes didn't come right because it was just so humid? This, you know, like those every time. You know, there's a book. It's called something like like the hundred dollar tomato. Like we're all like, yes, I'm going to start growing my own vegetables and save money. You always end up spending way more on that one awesome tomato that you grow, and it never quite works out. Some people are good at it. The mountains will drip sweet wine, and the hills will be dissolved. That's talking about the the, the nations. I will restore the captivity of my people. They will rebuild the ancient cities. They will live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I mean, it's such utopian, agrarian language, um, but it's, it's yet it's much more glorious, I think, than we can even begin to fathom. There's cities. If you don't like the country live in it says they'll make cities. How many people saw uh, the Black Panther and, and you know, Wakanda? It's like, I kind of imagine it'll be a glorious version of Wakanda, you know, if you saw that. It was a very sort of utopian. Micah 2, verses 2 through 4. They will beat their swords into plowshares again, and then skipping forward, it says, every man will sit under his own vine and fig tree and no one to make them afraid. So I joke, I say, this is the introvert's favorite verse. You know, I have five kids, they're real loud. I get up at four in the morning and I have my coffee and it's, it's the only quiet time ever in my house. And it's just, you know, like... <sighs> Good morning, Lord. It's just us. Everybody else is asleep. You know, and it's like... ah. And this is what it says. Each man will sit under his own vine and fig tree and no one will make them afraid. But then this is so awesome. So that's for the introverts. Then you have a very similar reference in Zechariah 3. And this is for the extroverts. It says, I will remove the sins of this land in a single day. In that day, you will invite, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. What are you guys doing tonight? You guys want to come over? Have you seen my vineyard? It's amazing, you know? I mean, let's, let's have some of that wine. I mean, I'm not trying to say that it's like this carnal, you know, we're getting drunk, like sort of the Islamic version of, of paradise. But the prophets do communicate it in a very physical, tangible, substantial way. This is what we have to look forward to. I want to just touch on one final issue and then wrap this up because this is so critical. Again, it's Palm Sunday. Jesus enters Jerusalem. The time is coming when Jesus will specifically be on the earth and rule from Jerusalem. I mean, this is so critical. 2 Samuel 7 11 through 16. Now, wow, well, this is part of that. Oh, And this is now what's called the Davidic promise or the Davidic covenant. So he starts with the Abrahamic promise, and then he builds on that, and he makes a promise to King David, and he says, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make a house for you, and when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, your seed after you, because I'm going to raise up one of your descendants who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. So again, this language of the throne of David, of the Davidic kingdom, of a restored kingdom of Israel, it permeates the scriptures. And what this means is that, as I said, the ultimate triumphal entry is coming the ultimate triumphal entry is a very real reality proclaimed throughout the scriptures. And the day will come when we will no longer simply gather together on Sunday to sing about Jesus and to pray to Jesus with our eyes closed, but we will open our eyes and we'll have the ability to see him, just like I'm looking at you right now, with glorified eyeballs. We'll actually be able to smell the fragrances of Jerusalem, the, the meat For those guys who like barbecue, the incense for all of you hippies, something for everybody. But I mean, this is the thing He created us to be able to eat, to be able to taste, to be able to smell. And we get to do that for eternity as we partner with our King in in the establishment of His kingdom, of which there will be no end, the expansion of it, there will be no end. I don't know what that means. But isn't this a lot better than just someday you die and go to heaven forever? Isn't this a lot better? Isn't this a lot more substantial? This is the good news that we have to proclaim. Let me wrap it up just by making this final point, which is also equally critical. Um, if you're a Christian, if you have transferred your faith from yourself, your own righteousness, which the Bible calls are like filthy rags, if we, have, if we no longer trust in ourselves, but we've put our trust in Jesus, in what he accomplished for us on the cross, then that is our inheritance. Because the day is coming when he will come back. Not only will he kill kings, but he will judge all the earth. And it says all of us will stand before him on that day. He, he has been appointed to judge the living and the dead. And it says that that is the day when the deeds done in darkness will be exposed. When everything done will be in darkness will be shouted from the rooftops. And I keep saying this, this is the day when Jesus is going to hack Google. And the internet histories of everyone will be shouted from the rooftops and laid before everyone. And, you know, these little sort of Dolly Madison things when, you know, the Duggar kid was exposed. He's working for the American Family Council and he's visiting prostitutes. That was like a small prelude to the day of the Lord. Everything is going to be exposed. And guys, not one of us can stand on that day unless we have put ourselves at the foot of the cross and and covered ourselves with the blood of Jesus, unless we put our full trust in him and him alone. And then we can stand on that day. But we will be judged for our faithfulness, for the deeds done in this body, and that will determine our inheritance, our rewards, or the lack thereof in the age to come. However, if you stand before him on that day, trusting in your own goodness, your own sufficiency, your own righteousness, then the scriptures declare that the kingdom that we just talked about, You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Instead, the unbelievers, the self-sufficient, the self-righteous will inherit the lake of fire. And Jesus said, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, bitter regret. You know, how many of you have ever made a bad decision and you just know the pain of regret? How would you like to live with that every moment for eternity? Burning at your conscience going, I could have inherited that. I want to appeal to you why don't you come on up, Pastor? I want to appeal to you, if that's you, if there's anyone in the room today that has never made the decision, you've never made the official commitment, you've never said, you know, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to stop trusting in my own goodness, and I want to start trusting in what he did. Then I want to appeal to you, with the words of Peter, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. I'm going to pray real briefly and turn it over. Father, I thank you for today. We thank you for the triumphal entry. We yearn for the ultimate triumphal entry. We yearn for the kingdom to come. We ask that you would encourage our spirits, encourage our hearts. And we ask, Lord, for anyone in the room that maybe has not made that commitment, right. the most natural thing in the world, to, to give themselves over to relationship with their creator. Right. We ask that you would touch yes, Lord. their hearts right now that you would stir their hearts and give them grace to say yes. Yes. Bring them into the family. Bring them into the kingdom. Make them, make them our brothers and sisters right. for eternity. Yes. We want to see them at the feast. And yes. so we thank you when we commit these things to you. In the name of your son, Jesus. And so
1: as we're just praying, uh, as Joel has shared, some of you, someone may be here, maybe it's you, that has not yet given your life to Christ. Three simple things that I'm going to ask you to do. Three simple first steps ask you to raise your hand up and then to stand up. As Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. It's that sure. It's that. And in making that decision, you're standing so that all the other bad decisions, all the other times that you excused yourself or for some reason or other wouldn't make that commitment. When you do that, you stand. God wipes that away. And they're going to ask you to walk up to one of the tables on the side where someone can pray for you. So as believers in the room, would you just bow your heads, bow your hearts in prayer. It's a battle. And you who have not known Christ yet, we understand the battle, all of us. We know that there is a battle going on in making that commitment to Christ, which only makes sense. And to not make the commitment, to not make that decision, is to already have decided, as Joel was sharing. So we're praying. If fact, you hand up and keep that up so I can acknowledge you and pray for you. I'm gonna ask you to stand up and then walk up to the tables on the side. So we're waiting, we're praying. Just another moment. Most important decision you will ever make is deciding between life and death, the kingdom or this kingdom out of reach. So we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for this message today. And as we're going to take this last song now, in singing it as our worship team leads us, I think it's fitting in response to this message that we stand and just say, thank you, Jesus, for what you accomplished for us. What he accomplished on the cross is absolutely, literally, out of this world, but yet it's what makes sense of the world that we live in. And so one day he's going to return and make it all right. Amen. So as the song is being, as they begin now, at some point, would you just stand in thankfulness and praising the Lord for what he's accomplished for us. And then I'll come up and close this after.